During my second tour of grad school, I had the, uh, um, <laughs> some of you understand that, um, I had the privilege to work with some pretty incredible people. Um, and I found myself um, sitting across the table having lunch with a guy. Uh, we were eating tacos. I don't know why I remember that, but it was tacos. And um, he uh, explained, he had asked me to lunch because he, he wanted um, to get some, some thoughts, I guess, on, on a project he was working on. And he uh, identified himself over the course of our conversation in some very unusual ways. First, he was, he was Southern. Second of all, he was a Republican. Third, he was a Christian. And fourth, he was gay. And I have to admit that he blew some holes in some very narrow, narrow categories that I had about people. It was a very interesting conversation. And, and I have to fully confess that as I'm having this conversation with this individual, there's this little voice in my head that's asking the question, is this okay? You are an ordained minister. Is this okay that you're having this kind of conversation? Unfortunately, um, I, I don't know where it kind of came from, but I, I, I gagged that voice and threw him in the trunk of my car. And I'm so glad that I did that because I ended up having this amazing conversation with perhaps one of the most creative people I've ever met in my life. And I'm better because of that conversation. Now, that doesn't mean that um, people who are opposite from you are always going to give you that level of conversation. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just telling you what my experience was, right? The issue of same-sex relationships is a hot button, isn't it? It's a bit divisive, shall we say. Both politically on a national level and within in the church. And uh, several months ago, we did a survey, and we just asked our congregation and some others, what are some of the topics that you feel we can't talk about in church? What are some of those things where you know, that it, it, it's okay to talk about this, this, but not that. What are anathema, so to speak? And the number one question that we received over and over and over again was on this issue of same-sex relationships. Because I think there's a lot of confusion around it. And it's on people's minds. And how do we deal with it as Christians? And the church really hasn't talked about it well and I'm going to tell you right up front that my attempt here is to be very, very sensitive, and I'm going to try to be PG-13 about it, but just FYI, there's going to be some things that <laughs> we can't get around. We actually have to talk about them. The polarizing effect of this issue means that while I'm up here talking about this, it is a no-win situation for me, okay? Let's just, let's just call the elephant in the room what it is, right? So I've decided, um, I've settled my heart on the fact that I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender, and so I'm just going to aggravate everybody, okay? And since Jesus did that a lot, I think I'm in good company. So here we go. <laughs> Some, somewhat, to a certain extent, I guess, this seems to be almost a generational issue. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but in some ways... The older generation is, it's wrong, and so we don't talk about it. 
And we have a younger generation that's going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of those people, whoever they are, they're my friends. How do I deal with this? If we're not going to talk about it and I still have friendships with them, where am I? Hence the voice in my head as I'm sitting across the table from someone. Does this make sense? I mean, this is, this is an issue that I think has um, kind of begun to bubble up over the last 10 years or so. And, and we've not treated it well, especially in the church, not really. And very much like politics, we tend to fall into extremes. On the one side, we have what I would call radical inclusivity, especially among certain mainline, what we would call liberal denominations, where they just kind of embrace everything, and it's not just embracing it, they're affirming it. And on the opposite extreme, you have what I would call radical hate from ultra-fundamentalists. And it's not just that this particular issue is wrong, it's aggressively wrong. I mean, I'm going to go after it. And, and if you're even remotely, uh, if you're even remotely um, supporting of it, you're wrong too, and there's going to be a blast radius. Right? And you know who I'm talking about. Most of us fall somewhere in between. We're not sure exactly how to think. Well, maybe it's sin, yes. I mean, I think, I think that's okay, but hate? Do I really have to go that far? Is it, is, it, is it either or black and white quite like that? And then what happens is, especially within the church, both sides will retreat to certain Bible passages and interpretations. And each time they pick and choose, and they emphasize what fits their position. Not long ago, I saw, uh, I think it was an Episcopalian bishop um, from here in the United States was talking um, on TV about ordaining a, a gay clergyman, a, a priest. And he's made this comment. He said, God is doing something new here. So much for God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I just remember thinking about this going, okay, we, we like to either pick the passages we like or ignore the passages altogether. And as a follower of Jesus, we must base our belief and behavior on something other than feelings. That doesn't mean we, we completely abandon our feelings, but the point is, is that's not the basis of these things. Why? Because human beings can be fickle. Let's just be honest. You know, we can, we can change how we feel about things. And so we have to base our, our, our beliefs and behaviors on something other than feelings, even when it's hard. And because we believe it's the repository of, of God revealing himself to humanity, we start with the Bible. Now, hold on a second. John Wesley always said, start with Scripture, but also include the wisdom of the church, the early church fathers in particular. He said also, is it reasonable? Is there a logic to it? Can we think about this so we don't abandon our mental faculties around these issues? But we also do that in light of the text, in light of the early teachings of very wise people who have gone before us. And finally, where is it with your own personal experience? 
Because there are some things that have happened to me personally that don't necessarily match up with the text, or there are things I find in the text that I find resonating within my soul, right? So it's not abandoning any of it, but it's hard mental work for us to get our minds around these things. But you have to start somewhere, not just with human feelings. Well, I just don't feel good about that. Interestingly enough, one of the early passages of of wisdom literature says, who can trust the human heart? Sometimes the way we feel about things can betray um, a lack of thought or a lack of, of, uh, or maybe an avoidance of hard things. So let's just talk a little bit about um, all of this. And if we're going to talk about the Bible, I need to give you a list of relevant passages when it comes to same-sex relationship. Here they are. Now, there may be some other minor ones, but these are the major ones for study. Genesis uh, 1, uh, there's also a verse in 2 and then in chapter 19, which is very controversial. Uh, Then you've got two passages in Leviticus. This is where it gets really hardcore. And if you've ever heard a person talk about same-sex relationship as abomination, this is where it comes from. <clears throat> Passage in Romans, which also is, is quite strong. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, like I said, there might be some other minor passages, but if you are going to study this issue, these are the relevant passages that come up over and over and over and over again in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to look at each one of these individually because we all want to go to lunch. But what what I would do is invite you to actually read each one of these. Um, I'll try to make these available uh, online at some point where you can actually see the list. What I can tell you is if I can summarize this, if I can take these particular passages, I can say that same-sex relationship is never mentioned positively. And it is usually framed in the context of sin or somehow tethered to it. I cannot get around that. It's there. And so if we look at the trajectory of the Bible from beginning to end, the overall library of books, I can say from that perspective, same sex is not God's idea for human relationship. I can't get around it. And if I'm going to choose to to base faith on, on what I think is God's revelation to human beings, I can't get around that. I have to look at the text for what it says in the overall trick. Now, we can go into individual passages and we can try to pick things apart and try to understand them, but when you look at the whole picture, when you look at the forest, not just the trees, you can't get around the fact that it is never mentioned positively and it's always mentioned within the context of sin, usually mentioned in the context of sin. Now, there's an objection here. And I've heard this objection quite a few times, and I understand it. What about people when they, when they say that they're born this way? And I understand that objection a lot. Unfortunately, there's a couple of things that we've, we've got to wrestle with when we, when we talk about that particular objection. First of all, after several decades of study, 
There is no evidence to support that same-sex attraction is biological. Several decades of scientific study have not supported that. To be fair, and we must be fair, there is also no science that shows that it is not biological. Okay? It didn't disprove, it didn't prove anything. And so the term is, it is inconclusive evidence. Now, I'm speaking to Christians. If it is rooted in biology, uh, human beings are all born into what we call original sin. And we are predisposed to following things that are not of God. And the one thing that I have not heard within the Christian discussion specifically is that issue. What do you do with original sin? Unfortunately, these passages in inconclusive science have been used to justify terrible treatment of people. There's a passage in Matthew 22 and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, meaning Jesus, a question to test him, which is very common. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the Torah? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, depend all of the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets come down to this idea of loving God and loving human beings. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Water, meat, mud. So on the one hand, you've got this idea of sin. On the other hand, you have this idea of love. And often I've heard this. <laughs> it makes me a little mad. But I've heard this. You need to love them enough to tell them that they're sinners and they're going to hell. Really? Jesus did that? Okay. By the way, that is the uh, rationale for the Westboro Baptist Church. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that up front. And every time I hear somebody say that, I'm reminded of the fact that Jesus walked up to a group of Pharisees, religious leaders of his time, and said, hey, by the way, the prostitutes are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Ouch. Right? So. <laughs> so what are we to do? We recognize within our text that there is a sin, sin issue and there's also Jesus' commandment to love. Sin, love, sin, love, sin, love, and welcome to the tension that is held in the scriptures. And it's a tension, I believe, that we're called to. Think about that. We're called to live in this tension because the Bible holds both of them at the same time. And perhaps maybe we can find some help from an ancient church that opened its doors to everyone. It's the church in Corinth. This fantastic city that sat at the crossroads of multiple um, uh, uh, trade routes within the ancient world. And the church that grew there was truly a, an astonishing church, and Paul wrote two letters to them, uh, maybe three. 
And I want to invite you to turn with me to chapter 6. And he's, he's talking to this group of Christians, and he says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? Do not be, de- de- uh, be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul puts it out there. Uh, Paul is not prone to understatement ever. If you recall when we looked at Ephesians, sometimes you have to sift through all of his words to get down to his message. Not so much here. I mean, he pretty much lays it out. Let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, um, this word, the sexually immoral, usually refers to fornicators. Those are people who have sex that are uh, before a marriage um, uh, commitment to one another. Uh, Notice that idolaters is also here. This is interesting. We're going to come back to that one. Adulterers. These are people who are married and have sex with other people. And then um, prostitution, which is sex for money, uh, is also in that list. Um, Doesn't appear on on this one because of the translation. But also in this list is uh, homosexuals, that same-sex intercourse. Now, the observation here is that this pretty much covers all types of sexual relationships outside of a male-female commitment in marriage. Okay? It covers all of those. The second observation is that it focuses on sexual acts. Not thoughts, but acts. On the behavior itself. And again, I want to point out the fact that idolatry is grouped here, which is interesting. But let's not just stop there. Let's keep reading because there's more to this. Because it also talks about thieves and the greedy, the drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. What's a reviler? Does anybody know what a reviler is? (laughs) Here's a reviler. Reviler is a person who's abusive. People who are abusive will not inherit the kingdom of God. And swindlers are those people who will extort for money. So now if we think about this a little bit, yes, none of those will will inherit the kingdom of God, but the question is why? And so let me suggest something. Let me suggest that there is something other than God in control of their lives. So thieves and those who are greedy are in pursuit of stuff. Um, In the Old Testament, we'd call that covetousness, right? So in a pursuit of stuff. So my, my desire for things uh, overwhelms uh, my sense of, of control. <clears throat> Drunkards, uh, which obviously means alcohol, but I would also lump any kind of substance abuse in that group. Because if you've met an addict, you know what controls their life. It's the next hit, right? Abusive. Uh, if you're abusive, I'm sorry, but anger's in control of your life. There's just or shame, or both, most likely. And of course, an extortioner is about the self, ultimately. But in verse 9, when we have this list of sexual issues, it means that sex is in control. It means that the desire or the perceived need for sex overwhelms our sense of control, which is exactly why idolatry is in this list. Because if something else is in control of your life, it is an idol. 
It doesn't just have to be sexual. And, and can we, church, begin to understand this conversation about sexual sin in the context of just sin? We sensationalize one part of it and we leave the others. You know, I've been in plenty of churches where, you know, we may not have any gays or lesbians in our congregation, but we have plenty of gossipers. <laughs> Ooh, did he just say that? Yes, I did. Because this is the problem. The issue is not the type of sin. It's the fact that we all have sin. We all need a Savior. In each case, when we look at this entire list, there is something ahead of God. But can we keep reading? Because here's verse 11. In such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hit the pause button because this is big. We just have this list. We understand that there's this sin that we all have. But notice he said past tense, some of you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In Jesus, by whom? Spirit of God. And there it is. There's the light at the end of the tunnel that is not an oncoming train. There it is. We are washed, sanctified, justified in Jesus by whom? Church, we must understand this. It is imperative that we get a hold of this. We do not help the kingdom of God by condemning, by hating, by shutting, by coercing. That just makes people try to conform behavior. It does nothing to transform their souls, and Jesus called you to be part of the transformation process, not the conforming process. The kingdom of God expands with the presence of God, always. If you want to see the kingdom expand, get a hold of the presence of God. And that's when washed, sanctified, justified followers of Jesus are strong and courageous and they wade in to the battle to love others, offering a Jesus way of being human. Not a fundamentalist, hate-filled way of being human. Not an inclusive, sort of affirm absolutely everything kind of, uh, kind of love way of being human, but rather a Jesus way of being human. Are you beginning to see this? And we allow the Holy Spirit to do His work, which is transformation. So please, 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 church, let's not elevate one sin over the others. Gossip, addiction, it's all destructive. Every last bit of it. In fact, in the early church, the confession of the early church was very simply this. Jesus came to undo the works of Satan. That was the early creed of the church. That's what they believed. That was the fundamental piece of it. And it's all destructive. And even when we talk about sexual relationships, we say, well, it's not really hurting anybody. Yes, it does. It may not now, but it, it will. I had a conversation with a friend of mine a few years ago who um, had, lots, had lots and lots of, of relationships. And I just explained to him, I said, intimacy is a function of commitment over time. If you have a one-night stand, you have a low level of commitment, and you don't have any time in with them. 
And yet you've gone to this very intimate place, and it is destructive because a piece of you goes. Now, I am not trying to be condemning if, if you've experienced that in your life. I'm not saying that. But if you feel odd or if you feel funny about some of those relationships, there's a reason for that. It can be destructive. Can you get over it? Sure. But it's destructive. All sin is destructive at some level. In fact, I am not aware of any sin that doesn't affect someone other than you. And here's the thing, though. <laughs> this, is the, this is the rub. If we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work, church, that requires us to be patient. And we're oh so good with that, aren't we? <laughs> We have to be patient and we have to be prayerful about these things. Um, the uh, staff wrote a book a couple of years ago. Um, and in that book, it described a church where there was a same-sex couple who spent two years in their church before they had any semblance of God calling them to the type of relationship that, that he would have. Do we have that endurance? to patiently walk with a, a group of people, I don't care what their sin is, do we have that level of patience and endurance to be able to go two years before we quote-unquote see fruit? Yeah. I wonder that too about myself. It's that kind of patience that we're ultimately called to. We're called to that tension. And so let me just make a couple of final thoughts on this. Look, none of us are as God originally intended. Issues that we have are all different, but let's not lose the fact that we all have issues, <laughs> okay? In fact, sometimes I think if we would just be honest with that, we might be able to give each other some more grace. But we all have these issues, and that's why we need Jesus. You're not here, and you're not telling other people because you already got it figured out because you've you know, done the Jesus thing. No! The point is we come here so we get a little more of Jesus so that we can get to be a little bit more like him and become that city on a hill with its light shining. Remember that whole metaphor that Jesus used? Yes. That's why we need Jesus because we've all got these issues. And please, please understand, you don't have to have your act together before you come here. Good heavens, if that were the case, I would not be up here. Still have my issues. Still deal with that crap. The world is messed up, and it's not fair, which is why God sent Jesus to begin with. He understood that about us. And here's the other thing, and I want you to understand this. Man. This, this is where I think a lot of this comes together for me. God does not condemn us for a state that we didn't choose. Okay? So however a person gets to their sin issue, whether that happens to be maybe a, a, a sexual sin or it happens to be, you know, greed or whatever. However you got to that point, you can blame your parents, you can blame society, you can blame whatever it is. God doesn't condemn you for the state that you're in that maybe you didn't choose, but he does hold us accountable for our choices. It always comes down to what are we going to do with that? Which is why Jesus brought grace because he knows that we're not going to get it right all the time. 
And that because we are in the state that we're in, we are going to make some decisions that are not healthy, that are not God-honoring, that are not holy. We're going to make those decisions. Plus, we have grace. That's why we give grace to one another. Sexual orientation is not the sum total of a person's identity. God sees all of us as his children first. And it takes Jesus and his spirit to bring us back into that relationship with him. Whatever your issue is, as a church, we will try to love you enough to let the Holy Spirit do his work. Doesn't mean we're going to get it right every time. But at least people will, un, will know where we stand with things. But we want to see you each as God's child first. That's what counts. And allow you to have the process that you need to as you're seeking him. Which is kind of the point. I mean, we want you to be seeking God. And I don't care how long you've been doing the church thing. you got another step to take with God. All y'all. I think the question that I'm beginning to ask myself more and more is how might I, because I'm only responsible for me, how might I care for God's children? How might I care for each person that I come in contact with? Because I think ultimately, if I am caring for the people I come in contact with and you are caring for the people you come in contact with, somehow needs get met. And there's love and there's grace and there's hope. And we understand that here's what the text says. I cannot condemn you for that. I can only point it out but tell you I love you enough. And if you're seeking God, the Holy Spirit's going to do his thing. Because if I don't have that, then I don't have any hope either. And homosexuality is not my issue. So we can take this one issue and we can lift it up and elevate it and say, okay, that one, it's not unpardonable. It's not. But it's also not going to be something that's going to get fixed right away that issue or any issue. So we need to understand it all as a sin issue. And if we're going to be in each other's faces doing this, I'm going to shut the doors and we're going to go do something else because I'm not interested in that. And I don't think it works. I think it is both inefficient and ineffective. And I keep thinking about how I might care for, for, for God's children and I'm thinking to myself that in this group you may know somebody who needs um, a savior who needs the presence of God in some way maybe it's you (laughs) right maybe it's you who needs that transformation because there's something going on inside of you and it may not be a sexual issue it may be something else entirely
Maybe you just need some help loving someone else because it's too difficult to love. It's getting hard. And you're living in this tension where I want to point out all of the sin things. And you know what? Sometimes the Spirit does prompt us to point out those sin issues. But first of all, it is not a drive-by. You have to earn the right to have that conversation. You have to have a relationship with them. And it better be Holy Spirit prompted. But maybe you're in that set of circumstances. I would like to pray for you. Please don't try to do this by yourself. God didn't ask you to do that. We're supposed to be a family in community. And if we all seek the presence of God individually, what's amazing is that we begin to experience the presence of God collectively. And I think that's the kingdom of God.